the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. And I hope you're not tired of turning to the book of Matthew because something I want to impress upon your, your minds and hearts is that uh, the Gospels, uh, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they reveal to us the life of Jesus, His death, His resurrection, and may the Gospels be ever more precious to you, ever more the books that you go back to to see and fall in love once again when you know times are spiritually dry, when times are tough, and when times are good uh, of your Savior, Jesus. And so here we are, back at Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you were with us on Zoom, you've endured through Zoom and you've walked with us through uh, this first section coming out of Jesus's introduction to his sermon, uh, we talked about anger. We talked about that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we've seen that even when we harbor anger in our hearts, uh, that it is indicative, it is revealing of something more severe, something more serious. And uh, I hope that was helpful to you. And if you weren't able to listen in, if you weren't able to tune on Zoom, I, I just want you to know that the sermons are online so you can keep track and keep up to speed. So maybe while you're doing your homework, while you're just grinding away at, I don't know, algebra problems, ugh, whatever you may be doing, um, that it can be beneficial for you and help you keep you up to speed because today we're in Matthew chapter five. And we're gonna talk about a couple of verses that I think is very important to talk about that in this day and age that you are bombarded with day after day. And I hope this can speak to you and be helpful to you and will quite possibly maybe convict you. So Matthew chapter five, we'll look at verses 27 to 32. This reads God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, This reads the very words of our living God who demands our obedience. Uh, Emergency response. Uh, ER for short. Uh, 911. Ambulances, first responders. Uh, Why do these things exist? 
These things exist to address dire issues, life and death issues, emergencies, dangerous situations. When you dial 911, what is your expectation? You expect the dispatch to immediately address your emergency, that they would send the the right man, the right team uh, to help you resolve your issue or to save you. You expect drastic movement, instantaneous reaction. You expect urgency. You expect your emergency responders to be serious, that they would take their job seriously, right? In the same way, Jesus demands a sense of urgency from his followers when it comes to resisting temptation and fighting sin. Uh, Urgency is a trait that is hard to find today in Christians, I think. Uh, When was the last time you were urgent about dealing with your sin? Uh, Resisting temptation and repenting from your sin uh, was the top priority of your mind. When was the last time you thought about that? You would do nothing else besides deal with your sin right at that moment, get yourself right with God, repent of the sins that you have committed, and you sought forgiveness from God. When was the last time you cared about that? Now, let me clarify something to you from the outset. Uh, genuine growing Christians have a serious concern over their sin. Uh, They do not have a flippant attitude towards their sin. Uh, There is no assumption of like, oh, once I'm saved, I'm always saved. Therefore, I can live my life however I want. Sin however I want. There is no such thing. That does not exist. Maturing Christians have a deep sense of urgency when it comes to overcoming sin in their lives. And I also want to impress upon you that you can, you can overcome sin and it is God's will that you overcome your sin as you grow and as you mature as a Christian. That maturity is possible. Holiness is possible. Godliness is is possible. Uh, God says, be holy as I am holy. This is very different from salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Uh, This is the process of sanctification. You're becoming more like Jesus the more you walk with him, the more you obey him. Therefore, as you become more like Jesus, you're becoming more holy, hopefully. You're becoming less sinful, to say it opposite. Uh, Until sin becomes bitter, Christ will never become sweet. Uh, The text we are studying tonight is a text that has become, for lack of better terms, culturally acceptable to the world. People do not care for the things that Jesus is speaking about anymore. We are talking about uh, the lust of the heart. The world will 
feed you postmodern nonsense. Uh, the world will say, what is true for me is true for me, is true for you, is true for you. And therefore, who are you to question the thoughts and the intentions of my heart? Mind your own business. Our scripture is overly, abundantly clear that it calls itself a double-edged sword. That it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so therefore, Scripture defines and it judges our hearts and our thoughts. It cares about these things. It cares about what we're thinking. What we're desiring. Scripture is the measuring rod, so to speak, of God. And that it demands us to respond to it. That we either live our lives under the authority of Scripture, either you model your life under God's authority, or you don't. And you continue in your debauchery, and you continue in your sin. And so today, when, when you read, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, tear it out, um, do you have that sense of urgency do you sense the seriousness of God when it comes to dealing with your sin? The issue of lust is not just a male issue. And I know for a fact that many, many of our gals today struggle with the same issues of lust, pornography, masturbation, lesbianism, transgenderism, all these things. If you go to public school, most likely you are bombarded with these things every single day of the week. Postmodern claims of sex and sexuality is brought before your face. And so I want you to know that Jesus speaks into all of that. Jesus cares about your sexuality, yes. He cares about what you're looking at. He cares about what you're looking at when no one is looking. He cares about what you're thinking about when your mind wanders and no one can see. So in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarifies once again the attitude his followers must possess when it comes to now the seventh commandment. Last week we talked about the sixth, but now here we are at the seventh. No adultery. He clarifies that Christians are concerned primarily with the matters and the issues of the heart. Therefore, when it comes to the sin of adultery, it is more than not just sleeping with another man's wife. But it's about how you view her, how you view another person, how you interact with that other person. And so therefore, the heart is once more our chief concern for study this evening. Before we dive into any kind of outline, any kind of breakdown of the text this evening, I think I find it imperative that we must first look at God's heart for our heart when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to the sin of lust. Chiefly, God's heart is centered around his creation and institution of marriage. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, as you know, God created everything. 
And he called everything that he has made good. And he created man in his own image. And he called man very good. And he rested. But in Genesis chapter 2, we have this account in which man was commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply like the rest of creation. And as God brought every living creature before Adam, before man, to be named, uh, a need became obvious. All the other living creatures have partners in which they can fulfill this command, but Adam had none. A dog wouldn't work. Sorry, guys. Nor a cat, nor a horse, or whatever you may be, or a tiger. Man truly needed a partner to be the right fit, the perfect fit for him. But the better term is to be the right complement to him. This complement is more than just for function, but rather for relationship, for weaknesses and for strengths. This complement would be enduring, much how God makes a covenant with his people. We talked about that. A husband and a wife would make a life long, life-enduring covenant with one another. And as we're going to read, man would leave his father and mother, begin a family of his own, and he would join with his wife, and they would become one. So we're just going to read real fast. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to the end of the chapter in 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Before Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This fitness, this complement unites in what? It unites in a oneness. Just as God is Trinity, one God in three persons, marriage reflects the enduring oneness of God. There is no separation in God. You cannot divorce the Father from the Son, the Son from the Father, the Father from the Spirit, or the Son from the Spirit. So the complementary picture, the fitful picture of marriage is till death do us part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Furthermore, marriage is also the vehicle in which children are brought into the world. And the fear of the Lord is commanded and taught to them. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We'll be looking at a good portion, a lot of scripture today. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, 
I would submit to you to memorize this portion of Scripture because this is the core of following God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. Children are taught to fear Yahweh in the arena and the context of marriage and family. One of the goals of marriage is to be fruitful and multiply. That is the original creation mandate that God gives to all of his creation. And this can only be true in the context of a biblical marriage. Lastly, marriage is the picture of Christ's love for his own bride, the church. Turn to your New Testaments, to Ephesians chapter 5. I would submit to you again to learn and memorize and love this passage. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to all read, we're going to read, sorry, we're going to read to chapter 6, verse 1. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his mother father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband's husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. As Christ gave himself up for her, Christ's death is for his bride, the church. He loves his bride. He went to the cross on her behalf. Just as the prophet Hosea was to take the prostitute Gomer as his wife, similarly, that image portrays Christ taking upon the church for himself. 
the church, rebellious, sinful, unclean, dirty, given over to idols and other lovers. Christ was to take the church as his own bride. And therefore, just as Christ has committed himself in covenant union to the church, a husband and a wife are committed in covenant union to one another. The act of sexual union is the ultimate expression, the ultimate experience of this oneness, of this commandment. It is the safest and most sacred expression of this unity. Because here, this complement is expressed to its fullest. This is why you are told to save yourself in purity to your spouse, for your spouse, because the level of commitment in marriage matches the level of intimacy in sex. And so here we are. Go back to Matthew 5. Here we are, and we've looked at the sixth commandment, and here we are at the seventh. Uh, We looked at how murder perverted and infiltrated the preciousness of the image of God upon man. And today we'll see how adultery and all expressions of adultery from the heart is a perversion and an infiltration of the preciousness of God's creation of marriage and sex. Jesus is concerned about this topic way back as much as he is concerned with it today. The issue of sexual immorality was as pervasive back then as it was, as it is, sorry, today. You read from the beginning of the Bible, you see immorality all over the place. And so even though immorality is seemingly more accessible because of the rise of modern media, the internet, whatever, uh, know that the problem has been present since after the fall. And so Jesus moves from the sixth commandment to the seventh. And similarly to what we studied last week, Jesus is concerned with your heart. He demands demands purity of heart as much as he demands purity of action. Therefore, examine your heart to see if you are pure before him. Because it is only, as we study in the Beatitudes, it is only the pure who is able to see God. And so we'll be doing this twice because Jesus tucks in the issue of divorce as well. Because divorce stems from the same heart as lust, uh, the same heart of pride. And so I'll look at these five verses with the same main idea. You must be pure before God. So similarly to our outline last week, we have the clarification of the law. Verse 27. We have a better expression of purity. A better expression of purity. And lastly, we have a warning for urgency with a conclusion. Clarification of the law, better expression for purity, a warning for urgency, and a conclusion. So look at verse 27, a clarification of the law. You have heard that it was said you shall not Commit 
adultery. Satan loves to take what is sacred and turn it absolutely on its head. Uh, Therefore, you can expect that marriage and sex will be one of the chief privileges that God has made to become totally and utterly corrupted. Uh, Furthermore, the religious hypocrites of the day, the Pharisees and their kin, they have also misunderstood and twisted this precious privilege. And so thus, Jesus again begins with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. Everything you hear, everything that you are told, everything you are taught must be examined and re-examined under the lens of Scripture. You are told many different things in your schools. You are told to believe things that may or may not be true. And what Jesus is doing once again is showing us that we are taught in school, in church, in youth group, even at home. Everything that we are taught must be held under the scrutiny of Scripture. You must hold what is taught to you in one hand and go to Scripture against what God says in His Word and you have to examine it. Therefore, when you read our Lord Jesus say that you have heard that it was said, be reminded that we must constantly examine every single piece of information that runs through our brains to see whether it is true or not. This requires you to know your Bibles. This requires you to have a biblical worldview. This requires you to engage your minds along with the Holy Spirit in discerning what is true, what is excellent, what is noble, what is lovely, what is all of these things. And ask yourself, does this honor the Lord? Therefore, when you read a command like, thou shall not commit adultery, and you also understand the heart of the Lord, you understand that this is more than just committing an external act. The Jews understood to some degree that lust is a sin, uh, as you can break the 10th commandment by coveting after another man's wife. But when it came to the act of consummating a marriage, the Jews viewed adultery purely in terms of sex outside of marriage, fornication. But Jesus is saying that you cannot divorce the commandments. You can't purely look at them one after another and see whether or not you're good with each one of them individually. Sin does not relegate itself to just breaking one commandment at a time. Rather, usually when we sin, we break multiple commandments, multiple breaches of holiness. And therefore, adultery is both lust of the heart as well as desiring after another man's wife through coveting. And all of this points back to pride, a heart of pride when you actually believe that you're so high and mighty and you're so... Great that you think you deserve to objectify another person made in the image of God. And so you see how so many commands blend together when it comes to this just this one issue. This issue of lust and sexual immorality. So therefore, Jesus moves to explain that it is the heart again that must be addressed. And here we are at verse 28. This is our second point, a better expression of purity. Jesus is not here. He he does not redefine the law. He's not giving us a new law. He clarifies it. 
He makes it more personal. He gets into our kitchens. He cares about what we are hiding when no one is around, what we're looking at, what we're thinking about, what we're daydreaming about. Jesus cares about all of these things because it is so easy to put on a mask of godliness. It is so easy to impress people when, in fact, we should be seeking to only please God. Therefore, Jesus says that if our desires are sinful, our desires, then we already have sinned. The term lust is an interesting word. The picture of the original Greek word paints for us is one of bubbling over, bubbling over, uh, much like how a school science project, you know, those classic ones, uh, those that consist of paper mache, usually in the form of a cone, kids like to call it a volcano, uh, baking soda, vinegar, all these things, when they're mixed together, they create a chemical reaction of gas and And the trapped liquid bubbles over as the gas pushes it up. Um, That's the same kind of imagery as the desires of your heart when it evilly wants something. When temptation knocks and Satan presents to you something or someone you desire that is not yours, uh, your heart bubbles over. It lusts. It desires what is not Yours, and when you engage and entertain those desires, the sin of lust is born. Lust happens even before you click on that website. It happens when you look again, when you do that double take. Um, This is a very serious issue that I do not want to downplay. I would argue that most of the guys in this room have at least dabbled in internet pornography. And a good majority of our gals, I would probably argue, I'd be confident to say that a good majority of our gals have done the same. And this is something I can't impress upon your hearts enough that it is so incredibly destructive. Do not buy into the lie that Satan is spewing and believe that just because you are alone, just because no one is around, just because you're not hurting anybody. You are in fact hurting yourself. You are hurting yourself as you objectify people. You are warping your perceptions of what God intended marriage to be. You have warping the expectations of what God has intended sex to be. You are harming yourself as you are harming your future spouse. When you give of yourself into lust and into internet pornography, you're giving yourself into breaking pieces of your heart away to a woman or a man that you have never met before and you'll never meet. And when it comes time to fully devote your heart and your soul to that man or woman God has planned you to be with, you can't. Because your heart's already broken up to these tiny thousand little pieces that you've given away to a person, to a screen. And then your spouse would be left with virtually nothing. 
So your love for your spouse will be affected. Your capacity for emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy will be derailed or neutered. You will not be able to fully give yourself to the man or the woman you have pledged your life to that God has given to you. Because of this pandemic known as internet pornography, because of this sin. And so do not buy into the lie that this abomination before the Lord does not hurt anybody because it will hurt the people you love as well as your own soul. And lastly, even more so than hurting other people, which it will, and hurting yourself, which it will, if you coddle this sin, if you refuse to confess and address and deal with this sin, you are proving to yourself that you have no understanding of the gospel. You have no understanding of Christ's death on the cross. You demonstrate to yourself as you continue to live in this sin that you never knew Jesus in the first place. So I implore you to kill this sin or it will kill you. Third, a warning for urgency. Verse 29 and 30 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. When it came to anger, uh, Jesus implored his listeners to do whatever it took to make things right between your brother and to resolve your conflict, confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, even if that meant leaving a sacrifice for God on the altar to do so. He stressed the importance of reconciliation so much so over any kind of external act of piety to God. And so this week, he makes a similar plea and with greater, if not more, urgency. This is what it takes to fight sin. You must be urgent. You must be resolved and you must understand the consequences of your sin. This text is so drastic, so determined to teach us what it takes to conquer our sin that many people just write it off as hyperbole. And yes, this is hyperbole. It is a figure of speech. The expectation is not for you to literally cut your hand or gouge your eye, but whenever you sin, but rather the point is you would do the necessary and serious steps to fight your sin. For the sin of lust, are you accountable to other people? Are you filling your thoughts with the things above, not the things below? Are you engaged in the meditation of the word and of God's character? Do you put off sin and put on godliness? Are you serious about producing the fruit of the spirit? Do you do what it takes to give no room for Satan, no room for temptation? Our previous vice president, if you know his name, Mike Pence, he got a lot of flack from the media because he refused to meet with women 
by himself. The media poked fun at him and called him a misogynist. They heckled him for his convictions. But I hope you see, at least in this case, in this context, you see a godly example of sorts, of protecting not just himself from sin, but also his marriage, protecting his wife, protecting his children, and of course, of course, protecting his reputation. Uh, This isn't a plug for conservative politics, don't get me wrong here. Uh, But I just want to lift up to you a tangible, real, noble example of a man who is serious about fighting sin. And we should respect the intentions behind that. So treat your sin the same way Jesus is treating your sin. Uh, Cut it off. Gouge it out. Do whatever is necessary, like Joseph, to run away from your sin. Leave your cloak behind, proverbially speaking. Get as far away from sin as possible. Don't coddle it. Don't entertain it. Don't think that you'll just be okay this one time engaging in this sin, and then you'll repent later. Don't delay. It's not okay. It raises the same sinful fist of defiance as all other sins in your life. And it costs the same precious blood of Jesus Christ to atone for as all other sins in your life. This is a serious sin I must impress upon you. Because you all live in a day and age where this is so protected in all of its perverse forms. Our world will lie to you and tell you It will tell you to prioritize yourself. Treat yourself, it says. Treat and prioritize your own pleasure over the denial of yourself, over personal holiness. The world will feed you lie after lie, saying that sex will ultimately fulfill you when it ultimately will not. The world will downplay and diminish and denigrate the beauty of marriage and sex within that context alone. All of these things and more. Uh, both the world and your flesh will seek to win you over to them. Uh, but listen to me, young Christian. Uh, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to his life and his sacrifice that he remained single until the day he died. As he died on the cross, he was perfectly satisfied, perfectly content. He was so in love with his father. And it was his father who was his portion. He needed no more. And so we know that joy, contentment, fulfillment can all be found in Christ. So when you start meditating on his sacrifice, when you start thinking on his life and his death and his resurrection, when you think that now he is the great high priest who has entered into the heavens, who can understand perfectly what it is like to be tempted, you and yet be without sin, you can know that he can sympathize with you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your infirmities. And he treats them all. He points to himself and he says, I understand, and I've done something about it. 
And, and if you have faith, even faith as small as a mustard seed, he says, know that he intercedes on your behalf, that he speaks for you, speaks in your place. He intercedes for you. He go, goes before his father and says, do not count this sin as condemnation against him, condemnation against her, but rather look at the blood, my blood upon them. Look at how my righteousness covers them. Look at even something as small and something as weak as their faith may be. There it is. It is faith nonetheless, and it is precious. He says all these things and more because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you as his very own. So you can have the same eyes and the same heart as Christ does towards this vile sin of lust. Because he gave himself up for you. To wash you and to renew you and to make you his own. The book of Hebrews goes on to explain that he is not ashamed to call us brother or to call us sister or to call us friend because of the work he has done. So look to Christ. Look to Christ and be saved. Look to Christ and be restored. Look to Christ and be fulfilled and look to Christ to behold his beauty. Surpassing beauty unimaginable beauty, beauty that captivates the heart, that confounds the wisdom of man and speaks to our deepest need for a savior. All of these things and more when you meditate on the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, if you have not trusted him, know that this offer for salvation, this renewal of mind and spirit, this resurrection of heart, is still very much available to you. You must repent and believe. You must turn away from your sin. You must renounce previous allegiances to lust and immorality, to anger and to malice, to pride and to selfishness, and submit your life, submit your heart, submit your entire being to Jesus. Then you will know him. Then you'll be able to behold this peculiar, unique beauty and be captivated. And then you'll be comforted. You'll be granted this assurance that surpasses all understanding and you'll be made whole. Uh, do not delay. Have this sense of urgency. Do not delay. I wanna wrap our time up with these last two verses. Divorce is the final and sad expression of adultery. It is the remnants, uh, the broken pieces of a marriage that once was. It is the ashes left by a path of destruction. Uh, it is the the final form of this sin. And I think it is one that the Lord grieves over the most. 
Divorce is so accepted today. You hear of it everywhere you go. It does not phase you when you hear that word. Uh, but let it be known that it is the very exact opposite of what God has intended. As we started, we looked at Genesis 2, that God has intended one man to be with one woman in a covenant for life. That what God has brought together, let no man separate. But it ex- divorce exists, even in the Old Testament. It exists, as Moses explained to the people of Israel, because of the hardness of their hearts. And it is a terrible effect of sin. And Jesus knew this harsh reality very well. Uh, we live in a divorce-torn world. Uh, Jesus, the Savior bridegroom who gave up his life for his bride, faced the very reality of this broken world, and he spit in its face when he went to the cross. Because even though the religious leaders and the broken religious system permitted divorce legally, so to speak, as men were able to freely divorce their wives as, their, as they chose, as they pleased, Christ, Christ our Savior, Christ our Bridegroom, chose to purchase his wife for himself, for eternity. He chose to purchase the ransom of the entirety of the church for himself so that what was given to him By the Father, Jesus explained, none shall I let go. Not one of his sheep will be lost or be abandoned. So therefore, Jesus provides this one caveat. And it is the very same sin we discussed this entire night. Sexual immorality, lust. He makes this one caveat because he knows how destructive this sin can be. The rest he describes is adultery, is that very sin. And I look at this and I see grace. That is grace. That is Jesus recognizing until he returns, not everything is black and white. Not every situation neatly fits into a religious box of this command applies, this command does not apply. If you think that Jesus is all about following his rules, broadband, and all he cares about is rules, all he cares about is obeying his commands, don't be fooled. Jesus cares deeply about you following him, about you obeying his commandments, absolutely. But he cares about it from the heart, from the heart. Earthly marriage is the picture that reflects the heavenly marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. Earthly marriage is temporary. And as soon as one partner dies, as soon as the Lord takes one of the partners, the marriage vows have been made complete. And that marriage, that earthly marriage is over. But the heavenly one, between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride, this heavenly marriage is eternal. Because Jesus is eternal. There is no divorce in heaven. Because God the Son is serious about the vows he made. And therefore, we believers, we are those who form the identity, the body of his bride, the church, has permanent deep assurance that we will be with Jesus. Not on the basis that we can keep ourselves, but on the basis that Christ keeps us as he keeps his words, his vows. Divorce is a terrible option. The worst option. 
It is the ultimate final choice that is made after sexual immorality has done its full damage. But know that this is not so with Christ. Christ never leaves. He never forsakes the wife of his youth. And so our marriages, our commitments can be built upon that level of commitment found in Jesus. This sin is so destructive. Do you now see why you must be urgent? Why you must be like an EMT rushing to a hemorrhaging person into the hospital? Do you have that sense of urgency? I close with the words of John Owens, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's pray. God, I, I know I can speak at least for myself and all my brothers and sisters here that what we have covered tonight, none of us stand blameless before you on our own. None of us can proudly boast and say that we have done well in this area of lust, for we have not. And so, Lord, may we treat grace in its right context for what it is, that grace is undeserved, unmerited favor, that through the blood of your son, Jesus, we find grace, that our bridegroom, Jesus, keeps his vows. And so, Lord, help us to keep ours because we base it upon who you are. Pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.